0: on substance use disorders that you can use to take better care of your patients on your next shift. Hello everyone, Dr. Casey Grover here, pleased to welcome you back to the Addiction in Emergency Medicine and Acute Care podcast. And I apologize for my voice on this episode, I am getting over some laryngitis. Before we dig into today's episode, I wanted to share some follow-up from our last episode on the risk that fentanyl poses to first responders. So, I was thinking about it. I have lots of patients who use fentanyl and I was thinking, how do my patients use fentanyl? They snort it, they smoke it, they inject it, and they take it orally. None of my patients rub it into their skin. So, Just in case you left our last episode wondering if dermal exposure to fentanyl might still be something that you need to worry about, my patients who use fentanyl have already figured out that it doesn't get absorbed through the skin so they don't use the drug that way. I thought that that was a nice way to think about the relative risk of each route of exposure to fentanyl, namely, do patients use the route when they are using fentanyl? If yes, then it's a viable way for the drug to get into the bloodstream. If no, then it's not a viable way for the drug to get into the bloodstream. Okay, with that, let's move on to today's episode, and this one is long overdue. Today we'll be talking about cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. We've got a few papers that we'll be going through today on this topic. The first one was published in the Western Journal of Emergency Medicine in 2017. The lead author was Jeff LaPointe, and the title is Cannabinoid Hyperemesis Syndrome, Public Health Implications, and a Novel Model Treatment Guideline. And, bonus points, friend of the pod, Dr. Ronit Lev, is one of the authors. This was a very definitive paper on the topic at the time that it was published, so let's dig in. The authors open their introduction section with an overview of cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. It involves nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain in the setting of chronic cannabis use. Diagnostic characteristics include regular cannabis use, cyclic nausea and vomiting, and compulsive hot baths or showers that resolve symptoms. They move on to discuss the pathophysiology of the syndrome, and unfortunately the pathophysiology has not been completely worked out. However, they do outline a few theories that have been put out there to explain the syndrome. The syndrome may be the result of down-regulation or desensitization of cannabinoid receptors from heavy cannabis use, and the syndrome may also be the result of changes in the function of cannabinoid receptors in the enteric nerves that results in slowed gastric emptying. The authors move on to review the signs and symptoms of cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome that were observed in one study on the syndrome. 100% of patients with the condition reported severe nausea and vomiting, 100% of patients with the condition reported cyclic vomiting that recurred in a pattern over several months. 97% of patients used cannabis at least weekly. 97% of patients reported resolution of symptoms after stopping cannabis. 92% of patients reported compulsive hot baths or showers with symptom relief. 85% of patients reported abdominal pain. 75% of patients used cannabis regularly for over a year, and 73% of patients were male. Unfortunately, the authors did not identify any formal diagnostic criteria, but did highlight that these findings were useful when considering if cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome could be the cause of a patient's symptoms. And the authors moved on to describe some greater detail about symptoms. Abdominal pain was usually generalized and diffuse. The syndrome was more common when cannabis was smoked, but could be seen with other formulations of cannabis except edibles. The authors could not find any cases of cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome due to use of cannabis edibles. Episodes usually last 24 to 48 hours, but could last up to 7 to 10 days. Many patients will have had multiple healthcare visits for these symptoms with negative workups, and some patients who get relief with hot water will report spending hours in the shower or bath. When evaluating patients with cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, the authors note that there may be some abnormalities seen on labs. Due to volume losses, labs may show dehydration. Mild leukocytosis is common. And Patients normally admit to cannabis use, but urine drug screens could be considered if patients deny cannabis use and there is a high suspicion for cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. And the authors note that imaging will not show any abnormalities. The authors move on to treatment and they actually describe how they put together a treatment guideline which they include in the paper. The paper is free open access on PubMed, so please check it out. Let's go through their recommendations. They start with capsaicin. Capsaicin is a topical preparation that causes a warming sensation on the skin where it is applied. The authors note that it has worked in some case series, and as it is a topical medication, it is a reasonable first line. They recommend application of 0.075% capsaicin to the abdomen or the backs of the arms. You can also ask patients where they put hot water when they shower or bathe to get relief and put the capsaicin there. Patients may note some discomfort initially, but the medication should mimic the relief that patients get with hot water when bathing. Patients should avoid applying this near the face, eyes, GU region over broken skin or on any sensitive areas. Patients, if it works, can be sent home with this to be used up to four times daily to treat symptoms at home. And as a quick side note, I have actually never tried this, but when I've asked patients about it, I have not gotten positive feedback from them. Back to the article, moving on. The authors move on to discuss antipsychotics. They recommend haloperidol IV or IM at a dose of five milligrams, or olanzapine, IM, IV, or PO at a dose of 5 mg. If PO is used, they recommend the Oral Dissolving Tablet Form, also known as the ODT. The authors note that there are multiple reports of antipsychotics providing excellent relief to patients with cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. The authors conclude with antiemetics. The authors recommend antiemetics, but note that traditional antiemetics have not been as effective with cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome as they are with other causes of emesis, such as gastroenteritis. Standard dosages of standard antiemetics can be used, and the authors give the following examples. Ondansetron, 4-8 to mg PO or IV. Metoclopramide, 5-10 to mg IV though you would likely avoid this if you're using haloperidol due to the risk of extrapyramidal side effects. And they also mention, but I would use with caution, benzodiazepines and IV diphenhydramine for nausea. Both of these can be very euphoric when given IV, so maybe use them if you really need them only as a last resort. Some final points that the authors make about treatment. Patients are likely dehydrated due to emesis, so IV fluids may be very helpful. Replete any electrolytes that are deranged due to the vomiting. And opioids should be avoided in cases of confirmed cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. The authors don't state specifically why, but my guess would be that the gastrointestinal hypomotility that opioids cause may make symptoms of cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome worse. If patients are better after treatment in the emergency department and can go home, the authors recommend the following. Tell the patient that their symptoms are due to cannabis. Tell the patient that cessation of cannabis will lead to resolution of cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. Counsel patients that symptoms can last after cessation of cannabis for up to two weeks so that they don't expect to be better right away. And counsel patients that they may get a return of cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome if they return to cannabis use. And that concludes our first article. As I mentioned at the time that the paper was written, it was a definitive source on the topic, particularly in terms of treatment of cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome in the ED. Now. What updated information do we have on cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome since this paper came out in 2017? Well, I didn't find much in the literature, but I was able to find a very comprehensive review of the topic that was published in 2020 in Annals of Gastroenterology with Abolash Parasetti as the lead author. The title of the article is Cannabinoid Hyperemesis Syndrome, an update on the pathophysiology and management. Let's dig in. The authors begin their introduction section by highlighting humanity's history with cannabis. It turns out that the use of cannabis by humans dates back to 3900 BC. The primary psychoactive component of cannabis is tetrahydrocannabinol, also known as THC, which is active in the endocannabinoid system in the human body. We are still learning how cannabis can relieve symptoms in the human body, such as inflammation, emesis, and nausea, and we are also learning how cannabis causes symptoms in the human body, such as hyperemesis, anxiety, and panic attacks. The authors note that about one in 10 people who use cannabis develop dependence, and the authors note that low-dose cannabis Appears to have an antiemetic effect, while higher dose cannabis tends to cause hyperemesis. Furthermore, and very interestingly, the authors note that the prevalence of cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome is higher in the United States than in the UK or Canada, despite similar rates of use of cannabis in all three countries. The authors move on to discuss the history of cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, noting that it was first described in 2009. The authors move on to discuss the history of how diagnostic criteria were defined, and we will review those criteria later in the episode. They continue on discussing the pathophysiology of cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. They start by noting, as we just discussed, that cannabis at low doses can provide an anti-emetic effect, while at high doses it causes a hyper-emetic effect. They note that cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome is a disorder of the gut-brain axis with underlying psychological stress, visceral hypersensitivity, autonomic dysfunction, and abnormal gut emptying leading to the development of symptoms. The authors move on to discuss the endocannabinoid system in exquisite detail, and I will summarize the high points. The endocannabinoid system is involved with the following functions of the gastrointestinal system, motility, secretions, emesis, satiety, and inflammation. The endocannabinoid system also interacts with the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal system, which affects the level of stress hormones in the body. It turns out that nausea and vomiting are largely a stress response in the body mediated by the brainstem, hypothalamic-pituitary-adrenal axis, and the vagus nerve. The endocannabinoid system provides negative feedback to the hypothalamic-pituitary-adrenal axis, which can suppress emesis. So, low-dose cannabis use can have an antiemetic effect. However. With higher doses of cannabis, the intoxicating effects provide a stress stimulus to the body which provides positive feedback to the hypothalamic-pituitary-adrenal axis which can promote emesis. Furthermore, THC is fat-soluble and a stress response causes lipolysis which leads to the release of stored THC in fat cells augmenting the effects of the consumed cannabis, increasing the stress response further. So, higher-dose cannabis use can have a pro-emetic effect. And finally, the authors note that the ratio of THC to CBD in the cannabis has an effect as well, though they don't clarify exactly how the ratio affects gastrointestinal symptoms. Okay, moving on to the diagnosis of cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome the authors note that the traditional diagnosis of cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome is hyperemesis in the setting of chronic cannabis use with pathological hot bathing behaviors. There are three phases of the syndrome. Prodromal, which consists of nausea, abdominal discomfort, and fear of vomiting. hyperemetic, which consists of intense and multiple episodes of vomiting. And recovery, which consists of Resolution of Symptoms and Return to Normal Eating. The authors move on to discuss the Rome IV criteria for cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, which is one set of proposed diagnostic criteria. Here they are. Symptoms are present for the past three months, with onset at least six months prior. Stereotypical episodes of symptoms lasting less than one week at least three episodes in the past one year, and two episodes in the past six months, with episodes occurring at least one week apart. And all of these symptoms should be associated with the chronic use of cannabis and stop with cessation, although they don't define what constitutes chronic cannabis use. And it's important to note that, of course, other causes of the symptoms such as pancreatitis gastritis, or colitis have already been ruled out. There are some other proposed criteria for cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, but the authors note that the Rome IV criteria are the most widely accepted. As far as complications of the syndrome go, the authors point out the following. Dehydration, acute kidney injury from volume losses, electrolyte disturbances from vomiting, and Mallory-Weiss tears also from vomiting. The authors move on to discuss management of this condition and they start with the management of acute symptoms. They begin by noting that the usual antiemetics such as Ondansetron, Metoclopramide, and Prochlorperazine don't work. They do note that Haloperidol has shown some promise in small studies and that Droperidol could work too, though we have to be careful about the black box warning regarding QT prolongation. The authors also note that tricyclic antidepressants have shown promise too, and the authors discuss capsaicin, noting that some studies have shown that the application of capsaicin to the abdomen have been helpful in relieving symptoms. The authors move on to discuss the long-term management of cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. They make a very simple recommendation, complete cessation of cannabis, potentially with a rehabilitation program. Due to THC's lipophilic nature and long half-life in adipose tissue, unfortunately, it can take months or even up to years for symptoms to completely resolve after cessation of cannabis use. It's important for patients to know this so that they do not resume cannabis after a brief cessation thinking that the cessation didn't help resolve their symptoms. And that concludes our second article. So, I understand why the condition happens. I understand how to diagnose the condition, but I wanted more information on how to treat cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. So, I went further into the literature. I found an article in Stat Pearls from 2022 entitled Cannabinoid Hyperemesis Syndrome with Frederick Chu as the lead author. Unfortunately, it didn't shine any new light on treatment. I got the same points. Cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome is refractory to traditional antiemetics. It may respond to tricyclic antidepressants and consider capsaicin. Bummer. I kept trying. I found an article published in Pharmacotherapy in 2017 with John Richards as the lead author, and the article was entitled Pharmacologic Treatment of Cannabinoid Hyperemesis Syndrome, A Systematic Review. This paper was a little older, but they looked at quite a few different substances, including traditional antiemetics, opioids, zanisamide, levotiracetam, benzodiazepines, haloperidol, capsaicin, and pentoprazole. Out of all of these substances, the authors, in their review, found that for acute cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome symptoms, benzodiazepines, haloperidol, and capsaicin were the most effective and for chronic management of the condition tricyclic antidepressants were the most effective. The methodology of this paper was a literature review and most of the literature included small studies and case series, so the data here is limited. I thought the data actually on amitriptyline was pretty impressive as 93 percent of patients in one small study had a reduction in cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome symptoms after three months of treatment when taking amitriptyline. So, this was helpful, but once again not definitive. So I broadened my search to include a general internet search. And fortunately, the medical blog Academic Life in Emergency Medicine had a post on cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome from 2021. They based their post on a literature review and suggest the following treatment algorithm for acute symptoms start with haloperidol IV or IM with a recommended dose of 2.5 mg and a consideration to repeat the dose once if still having symptoms. Consider adding in capsaicin. And for persistent symptoms, they recommend that we consider adding benzodiazepines, such as lorazepam 1 mg IV, antihistamines, such as diphenhydramine 50 mg IV, and ondansetron 8 mg IV. For discharge home, they recommend stopping the cannabis and considering amitriptyline for the prevention of recurrent episodes. And that seems like a pretty reasonable regimen, consistent with the evidence we found in other papers. Let's hit a few final points before we wrap this episode up with some take-home points. First, a colleague of mine has reported anecdotal success for cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome with 25 milligrams of Thorazine IM combined with 25 to 30 milligrams of slowly infused ketamine. He calls it Thoraket. I thought he had published on it, but I couldn't find it. I've actually used it twice and had great results. Second, if you go back to episode 3 of this podcast on cannabis withdrawal, gastrointestinal symptoms are part of cannabis withdrawal. So I have to wonder if some of the symptoms of cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome are actually a variant of cannabis withdrawal. And as such, going back to episode 10 of this podcast on gabapentin for cannabis withdrawal symptoms, I have to wonder if gabapentin might be helpful in both the acute and chronic management of cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. And finally, I can't do an episode on cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome without mentioning scromiting. And that is S-C-R-O-M-I-T-I-N-G scromiting. Kudos to my colleague, Dr. Ranit Lev, for combining the words screaming and vomiting to describe how miserable patients with cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome feel, and then making that term widely known. Okay let's wrap this episode up with some take-home points. Number one, cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome is a syndrome that develops in people with chronic cannabis use that involves cyclic abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting that improves with compulsive showering or bathing with hot water. Number two, episodes usually last 24 to 48 hours, but can last days. Number three, The pathophysiology is not fully understood, but is thought to be due to complex interactions between the endocannabinoid system and the gut. Number four, there are some diagnostic criteria that have been proposed, and while none has been agreed upon as definitive, here are some good diagnostic criteria for cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. Patients chronically use cannabis there are recurrent episodes of nausea, abdominal pain, and vomiting. Multiple episodes are experienced yearly with symptoms overall having been present for more than six months, and symptoms are temporarily relieved with hot showers or baths, and compulsive bathing or showering may develop. Number five, definitive treatment involves cessation of cannabis. Number six, For acute episodes, haloperidol, IV, or IM is first line. Number seven, for acute episodes, applying capsaicin to the abdomen has been shown in multiple studies to be helpful in relieving symptoms. Number eight, for acute episodes, adjunct therapies such as IV benzodiazepines and IV diphenhydramine can be used, but should be used with caution given their sedating properties and potential for euphoria. Number 9. For acute episodes, IV on dancitron may be used, but studies have shown poor efficacy. Number 10. To prevent recurrence of episodes after an acute episode, amitriptyline may be used. Number 11. It may take months, up to even years, for symptoms of cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome to stop after cessation of cannabis given the lipophilic nature of THC and THC's long half-life in adipose tissue. And number 12, some studies have shown that this syndrome does not develop in patients who use cannabis edibles. So if people absolutely state that they cannot stop using cannabis, patients could consider switching to edibles to see if that reduces their symptoms. And that is a wrap. Please excuse my laryngitis, and please consider sharing this podcast with a colleague if you find it helpful. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you for what you do. And don't forget, treating substance use disorders saves lives.